Thank you for joining us around the fire. For more information or to make a donation, please visit randomactnetwork.com. Now, want to hear a scary story? Once upon a time, a few hundred years ago, a humble witch lived along the banks of a river that had recently gone mostly dry. The ongoing drought killed most of the locals' crops and made finding clean water nearly impossible. Yet, as the riverbeds remained dry, the witch's garden thrived. She'd inherited the cottage and her magic from her mother and worked in the magical garden each day. As it grew, she added walls of trees and fences of stone, but still the plants rose high above. The locals had treated her mother terribly, so they'd promised never to share their food and drink with the town. Unlike the witch's family, the townsfolk didn't notice or care for the nature around them. She always suspected if they treated their surroundings with kindness, their water would flow again and crops would be plentiful. Had the locals from the nearby towns ever bothered to speak with her before the drought, she'd have happily supplied them with all the food and drink they'd need. But her and her mother were treated terribly by their neighbors, and the witch simply couldn't find it within herself to care. But then, a young, starving boy knocked on her door. She opened it apprehensively to find his begging eyes looking back. In his hands, he held an apple, which had fallen off the branch overhanging the fence and rolled to his feet in the grass. He asked for permission to eat it and then waited there, even though he looked hungry and tired. The witch couldn't resist and sent the boy off with a basket full of fruits and vegetables. The next morning, she awoke to find his father at the door, hoping to barter for more. The river was starting to fill up again, they said, but it would still be a while before there was enough for the town. She invited him into her home and out back to her private oasis. The garden entrance gave way to exotic plants unlike they'd ever seen. Branches bursting with baguettes and muffins, cupcakes and cookies. Lollipops hung in bushels, and the apples, oranges and grapes were the largest you'd ever seen. In the center of the tantalizing maze stood a well, the witch's enchanted water source, and the root of her garden's abundance. She filled a bucket for the man and watched as he drank from it with tears in his eyes. She was thrilled with her ability to help, and though she hated to admit it, she also loved the company. But in the back of her mind, she wondered what could come from this, Perhaps she should have listened to her mother. In the days that followed, more and more people from town arrived, and the witch began setting out buckets of goods at night to avoid the constant knocking on her door. But this only led to them arriving earlier and earlier, expecting food and drink at any time of day. And though the garden was magic, her delicious plants still needed time and care. The branches offered less each day, and soon were nearly empty. 
when she knew that her garden needed time to heal itself or the damage would be irreparable. She kindly packed some baskets for the villagers of the few treats she had left to offer and asked them not to return for two weeks' time. Though she hoped that they'd be understanding, the villagers grew angry, accusing her of standing by while her neighbors died of starvation. Heartbroken, she slammed the door and snuffed the fire. As they continued to knock on the doors and shuttered windows, she slipped under her heavy quilt and cried herself to sleep. In the morning, the sounds of a saw awoke her. She rushed from her bed into the yard to find her entire garden picked over, nearly every plant empty, and a handful of men filling buckets of water from the well. The sawing noises came from the tall line of trees that had previously made up the garden's western wall, now a gaping, haphazard hole, looking on towards the town. The witch flew into a rage, casting violent spells in the villagers' direction, and the terrified men tore back towards the town. She sealed her property off once again with a stone wall taller and wider than before, and placed her hands on the cold stone well, reciting a curse that would plague anyone but herself who drank from its belly, or ate the crops it had nourished. No one from town dared return when she was awake, but as she expected, she had a few new friends in her garden the following morning. Smiling, she picked up the small wooden gnomes that had appeared near the well and placed them around the garden. As the days passed, more people from town came back to steal from the witch, and before long, her garden was filled with wooden gnomes, as well as the lush, delicious plants she'd had before. She smiled at her little friends as she tended to the garden. But the locals returned with torches. They demanded that she free the missing villagers and give over her land to the town, or they would kill her. She slammed the door and clutched her book of spells. She could take all of their lives in seconds, but at what cost? A lantern crashed through a window and ignited the cottage. The witch let out a horrible, piercing cry and rushed into the garden. There, she found the locals in a panic. The flames passed from the house to the garden and the trees, and as the fire licked the surface of the wooden gnomes, the spell was reversed. The town had come for the witch, but now they were forced to watch helplessly as their family and friends burnt to death before their eyes. The witch ran from her property and down the hill towards the riverbed, which was just a bit higher than the day before, and fell to her knees. She scooped the muddy water into her hands and muttered a spell, when a rope came from behind and tightened around her throat. Grasping at the noose and gasping for air, she was pulled backwards through the grass. The sticks and rocks and bushes that she so loved around her now scratched and scraped away her flesh and bones. Tied quickly to the stake above, she pitied the men. The witch laughed as the flames tickled and kissed her feet on their way towards the sky. She told them what she'd done. The river was cursed to remain toxic forever, and the town would never thrive. She kept cackling until she was only fire, and the men returned to their quiet town, now forever plagued 
by the witch's curse. Years ago, the church obtained a shack of a building formerly used to treat victims of the Spanish flu. It was known as a cursed site, the place of many tragedies, but the Overlook Institution opened under the evil eye of the Mother Superior, Sister Margaret Martin. Margaret had a furious temper, and most did what they could to avoid her path. This wasn't always possible, though, and she was known for her wicked punishments. The locals turned a blind eye to the place, as it was known to obscure the undesirables from society. They didn't care to question why most who went in never walked out, because they preferred it that way. Favorite victims included the usual targets, queer people, those with mental illness, disabilities, along with young unwed mothers and anyone else who could be rehabilitated or saved. Anyone who didn't fit the perfect society the conservative locals fantasized about. They didn't keep records, or if they did, they were never found. So no one knows how many people died there while Margaret was in charge. But the stories of her demonic deeds have not been forgotten. She loved sending poor souls down to the dark, disgusting basement for cleaning duty where they'd be forced to scrub the rotting floors and walls with bare hands for hours with almost no light. The basement was a former crematorium and morgue during the pandemic, and many believed unhappy spirits remained trapped there. That's not to mention the snakes, roaches, and other horrors that waited in the shadows. Sister Margaret was known to stand with her back to the basement door, smiling wide as a desperate voice begged for release from the other side. She also loved to force her victims up five stories to the water tower. The town had always struggled with dirty drinking water, so the local government added the tower and filter system to the property when the church expanded it. The pipes delivered water throughout the building just fine, but she'd force them to fill each bucket from the top of the tower, then bring them all the way down, earning a lashing for every spilled drop. But there were a few times when the lashings weren't enough, and Sister Margaret simply pushed her victims into the water while they filled their buckets. It was too deep to get out without help, and she'd watch with a devilish grin until the helpless form sunk to rest at the bottom of the tank. And in the following weeks, while others complained about smelly, foul water coming from the faucets, Sister Margaret would help herself to the private tank in her quarters, filled with clean water from the buckets carried down by those she punished. But her favorite form of torture was the worst, because it came with no warning at all. She was always armed with her rosary, with thick, cumbersome beads and a sharp metal cross at the end. And when overtaken with the most violent, evil fury, it was perfect for strangulation or forcing into her victims' mouths, gagging and choking them until they stopped breathing. 
The others who worked at the facility knew of her actions, but were powerless and feared becoming victims themselves. She controlled where they lived, what they ate, who they spoke to, and when. And there was nowhere to go if they attempted to escape on foot, as the closest neighbor was miles away. Sister Margaret's reign of evil lasted almost 30 years, until she welcomed a new patient unlike any who came before. One who refused her punishments and fought back. From here, the story splits into several versions, whether she was choked to death with her own rosary, pushed into the water tower, or left to die in the basement. But a small fire broke out at the back of the building, and many took this opportunity to escape the damned building's walls. When authorities arrived, they were horrified by the conditions inside, and the institution was immediately shuttered. But Sister Margaret was nowhere to be found. They searched for weeks, but never found a clue, and eventually called it off, insisting to the public that she died in the fire, and doing everything they could to downplay the rumors of poisoned water and torturous acts. In 1952, a cosmetics company converted the building into a factory, but Margaret's shadow never left. Rumors spread that she was a demon in disguise, one who remained close, ready to punish anyone who dared speak ill of her. Others insisted she was simply an evil person in a position of power, who did horrible things because nobody stopped her. Many years later, the factory had a fire of its own, and a crumbling wall revealed the mummified body of a woman. Some might be comforted to know that the DNA confirmed Sister Margaret's final resting place was within the building. Less comforting, though, is that testing revealed that she didn't die the night of the fire in 1950. Sister Margaret Martin had been murdered decades before, as early as 1923, the year the church took possession of the building. It was the sort of thing that just didn't happen. Cars didn't just break down, not on empty roads with dirt shoulders, and certainly not at night. When she'd set out from the last town, maybe 40 minutes back, she hadn't worried about the funny sounds the car was making. 
It would make it to her cousin's cabin. It just would. But it didn't. When she'd called the nearest tow truck, an automated voice had informed her that she'd have to wait for the morning. Five more increasingly frantic calls had turned up nothing better. She would have to wait out the night. As she was trying to figure out the closest the back seat would let her get to lying down, she heard a light, careful knock from outside the car. Alarmed, she sat up. It took her a few seconds to even see that, cloaked in the dark, there was a figure standing near the passenger window. She clicked the car's lights back on, and instantly the figure backed up. She could see a silhouette only, a woman, tall, wearing a dress and some sort of cloak or veil. Her head was turned towards the ground, hiding the face entirely. She rolled the window down about halfway. Can I help you? The voice, clearer and younger than she had expected, answered back. Do you need a place to stay the night? The woman unnerved her, just a little, but so did staying in the car the whole night. She weighed the two carefully before answering, Thank you so much. I'll get my bag. Do what you need, said the woman, with just a little bit of an accent she couldn't quite place. Only no lights. She paused. No lights? That's the rule. She stepped out of the car and circled the trunk, all the while desperately trying to explain the situation away. It could be a religious thing, or maybe it was just for the night. There was someone she wasn't supposed to wake up. Or she could have some kind of deformity that she was shy about. It was all perfectly normal. The woman waited for her, still facing just away from her in the car. When she got her suitcase, she followed the woman as she walked into the field, towards a distant house. There were no lights on in it. Is it just you out here? She asked casually. No, the woman said. Together, they came to the house. It was one story tall, with a corrugated metal roof. It hadn't been painted for at least a few years. The woman eased the door open. Inside, it was pitch black. And you did what I said? No lights? No lights, she repeated, although as she did, her finger snuck into her pocket and touched the lighter she always carried there. Can I ask? It's the rule, the woman said and gestured her in. As she entered the small house, she found herself entirely blind. Only the creak of the wooden floor under her shoes and a faint but unpleasant smell she couldn't place told her anything about where she was. I've brought a guest, the woman called out loudly as the door closed, startling her slightly. We'll have something to eat. You'll be glad. Thank you, but it's not necessary, she said, tottering carefully forward. She heard other movements around her, but had no idea how many people there were or how large the room was. I just need a place to lie down and... As she spoke, she bumped into what she realized was a chair. Slowly, as her eyes adjusted to the light, 
she became aware of a long table with many figures sitting or standing around it. All of them wore the same cloak as the one who had found her. Eat, said a voice she didn't recognize, laying a plate in front of her on the table. You'll be glad you did. She eased her way into the chair and tried to make her eyes pierce the shadows. The other figures were all sitting down around her, but their faces were hidden. Most of them seemed to be staring straight down into their food. She fingered the lighter in her pocket. Just a glimpse, she thought, just enough to know what's going on. They couldn't be mad at her for that. There was no sound or movement as the figures chewed. They lifted the food into the shadows of their faces, then dropped their fork back to the dish. Her hand found her own fork, and she hesitantly smelled a bite of the food. It had none of the unpleasant odor. When she finally tasted it, it was good, soft and almost sweet in an odd way. Is it always dark like this? she asked. All the time? That's the rule, said another of them, and then silence. Nothing but the sounds of forks and plates. The unpleasant smell seemed to grow worse every second. It made her almost lightheaded. She fingered the lighter. It made her feel powerful. She could end all of this any time she wanted to. So, are you a family? A church? Uh... She drifted off. No answer. Her thumb slowly spun the lighter cylinder. How long have you been here? Eat, said another voice. You'll be glad. That was when she pulled the lighter out and turned it on. For one moment, before it blew back out, she saw everything. She saw the walls, old and covered in brown stains. She saw what they had been eating. She saw the faces, not just rotten and decayed, but warped, twisted into a new, monstrous shape. One with a wide mouth and sharp teeth. After a few moments of light, the lighter went out. The darkness was complete again, and so was the silence. Too bad, said a new voice, the last she ever heard. If you had just followed the rule. Mr. Rivers was known for his temper and for taking it out on his students. No one dared misbehave in his classroom after rumors spread of his horrible punishments from back in the day. He once forced a boy to hold his nose in the corner of the room for so long, he fainted and cracked his head open. None of the other students dared say anything. Another kid had to stay after class and rewrite sentences thousands of times. Mr. Rivers went home for the night. But the boy was too scared to move without completing the task, and he stayed in the desk for two days straight. He didn't speak to anyone else again, and left the school at the end of the year. But the worst tale 
was a young girl who snuck out of class one afternoon, enraging Mr. Rivers. The following day, he locked her in a closet. Her friends stayed after school to set her free, but he guided them out of the building and left with the keys, and the building was empty for the whole weekend. No one saw or heard from her ever again. Mr. Rivers didn't see any point in respecting his inferiors, and he refused to learn his students' names. Instead, they were each assigned a number on the first day, which is how he'd referred to them for the rest of the semester. Because of the ever-growing school enrollment, his class was almost completely full with 30 total students. One evening, after an especially infuriating day, he sat at his desk grading papers, most of them failing. An attendant from the office came by with a note, saying they'd received a message for him. It read, Your cruelty is self-serving. Try teaching with kindness. Number 31. (laughs) I have no student 31. He sat there, staring at the note. He knew there was no student 31, and the thought that someone in his class was pranking him only infuriated him more. The following day, he reprimanded each of his classes, threatening all kinds of punishments if the student behind the prank didn't come forward. Nothing did any good, and nobody had anything to say. Then the only fair thing to do, he said, is give everyone detention. And he spent the evening supervising all of his students working in silence until the building closed. The students had gone back to their dorms, and he was preparing to leave. As he put on his jacket, he noticed a paper on his desk he hadn't seen before. It read, It's not too late for you. Number 31. He looked around the empty room and tore into the hallway, desperate to catch whoever left the note, and spent the following day making even more severe threats than before. Getting nowhere, he dismissed his classes and worked in a state of rage throughout the day in the quiet classroom. Several hours passed as he graded the same few papers, unable to focus, and he rubbed his sore eyes in frustration. It was time to call it a night. But when he stood up, he nearly screamed. He'd been alone for hours in that room, but now, behind him on the blackboard, was a sprawling message written in chalk. Don't turn your back on me. He stumbled from the room, disoriented and choking on the air, and fled from the building. The next day, the students learned he'd be taking a week of medical leave, which turned into two weeks, and then a month, and finally, permanent retirement. No one at the school ever saw Mr. Rivers again. The following summer, the gutted classroom was being remodeled, and the wall that held the blackboard was torn down. Stuffed inside, construction workers found the long, mummified body of a young girl. The Blackboard, told by Hannah Mary Simpson, featuring Brian Renaud.
It is said that in Ulthar, which lies beyond the river Sky, no man may kill a cat. And this I can verily believe, as I who gaze upon him who sitteth purring before the fire. For the cat is cryptic, and close to strange things which man cannot see. He is the soul of antique Egyptus, and bearer of tales from forgotten cities in Meroe and Ophir. He is the kin of the jungle's lords, and heir to the secrets of hoary and sinister Africa. The Sphinx is his cousin, and he speaks her language, but he is more ancient than the Sphinx, and remembers that which she hath forgotten. In Ulthar, before ever the Burgesses forbade the killings of cats, there dwelt an old cotter and his wife who delighted to trap and slay the cats of their neighbors. Why they did this I know not, save that many hate the voice of the cat in the night, and take it ill that cats should run stealthily about yards and gardens at twilight. But whatever the reason, this old man and woman took pleasure in trapping and slaying every cat which came near their hovel. And from some of the sounds heard after dark, many villagers fancied that the manner of slaying was exceedingly peculiar. But the villagers did not discuss such things with the old man and his wife, because of the habitual expression on the withered faces of the two, and because their cottage was so small and so darkly hidden under spreading oaks at the back of a neglected yard. In truth, much as the owners of the cats hated these odd folks, they feared them more, and instead of berating them as brutal assassins, merely took care that no cherished pet or mouser should stray towards the remote hovel under the dark trees. When, through some unavoidable oversight, a cat was missed, and sounds heard after dark, the loser would lament impotently, or console himself by thanking fate that it was not one of his children who had thus vanished. For the people of Ulthar were simple, and knew not whence it is all cats first came. One day, a caravan of strange wanderers from the south entered the narrow, cobbled streets of Ulthar. Dark wanderers they were, and unlike the other roving folk who passed through the village twice every year, in the marketplace they sold fortunes for silver and bought gay beads from the merchants. What was the land of these wanderers none could tell, but it was seen that they were given to strange prayers and that they had painted on the sides of their wagons strange figures with humanoid bodies and the heads of cats, hawks, rams, and lions. And the leader of the caravan wore a headdress with two horns and a curious disc betwixt the horns. There was, in this singular caravan, a little boy with no father or mother, but only a tiny black kitten to cherish. The plague had not been kind to him, yet had left him this small furry thing to mitigate his sorrows. And when one is very young, one can find great relief in the lively antics of a black kitten. So the boy, whom the dark people called Menes, smiled more often than he wept, as he sat playing with his graceful kitten on the steps of an oddly painted wagon. 
on the third morning of the wanderer's stay in Althar. Menes could not find his kitten, and as he sobbed aloud in the marketplace, certain villagers told him of the old man and his wife, and of sounds heard in the night. And when he heard these things, his sobbing gave place to meditation, and finally to prayer. He stretched out his arms towards the sun and prayed in a tongue no villager could understand, though indeed the villagers did not try very hard to understand, since their attention was mostly taken up by the sky and the odd shapes the clouds were assuming. It was very peculiar, but as the little boy uttered his petition, there seemed to form overhead the shadowy, nebulous figures of exotic things, of hybrid creatures crowned with horn-flanked discs. Nature is full of such illusions to impress the imaginative. That night, the wanderers left Ulthar and were never seen again. And the households were troubled when they noticed that in all the village there was not a cat to be found. From each hearth the familiar cat had vanished. Cats large and small, black, gray, striped, yellow, and white. Old Cranon, the burgomaster, swore that the dark folk had taken the cats away in revenge for the killing of Mene's kitten, and cursed the caravan and the little boy. But Nith, the lean notary, declared that the old cotter and his wife were more likely persons to suspect, for their hatred of cats was notorious and increasingly bold. Still, no one durst complain to the sinister couple, even when little Attle, the innkeeper's son, vowed that he had at twilight seen all the cats of Ulthar in that accursed yard under the trees, pacing very slowly and solemnly in a circle around the cottage, to abreast, as if in performance of some unheard-of rite of beasts. The villagers did not know how much to believe from so small a boy, and though they feared that the evil pair had charmed the cats to their death, they preferred not to chide the old cotter till they met him outside his dark and repellent yard. So Ulthar went to sleep in vain anger, and when the people awakened at dawn, behold, every cat was back at his accustomed hearth, large and small, black and gray, striped yellow and white. None was missing. Very sleek and fat did the cats appear, and sonorous with purring content. The citizens talked with one another of the affair and marveled not a little. Old Cranon again insisted that it was the dark folk who had taken them, since cats did not return alive from the cottage of the ancient man and his wife. But all agreed on one thing, that the refusal of all the cats to eat their portions of meat or drink their saucers of milk was exceedingly curious. And for two whole days the sleek, lazy cats of Ulthar would touch no food, but only doze by the fire or in the sun. It was fully a week before the villagers noticed that no lights were appearing at dusk in the windows of the cottage under the trees. Then the lean Nith remarked that no one had seen the old man or his wife since the night the cats were away. In another week, the burgomaster decided to overcome his fears and call at the strangely silent dwelling as a matter of duty, though in doing so he was careful to take with him Shang the blacksmith 
and Thul the cutter of stone as witnesses. And when they had broken down the frail door, they found only this, two cleanly picked human skeletons on the earthen floor, and a number of singular beetles crawling in the shadowy corners. There was, subsequently, much talk among the Burgesses of Ulthar. Zack, the coroner, disputed at length with Nith, the lead notary, and Cranon and Chang and Thal were overwhelmed with the questions. Even little Attil, the innkeeper's son, was closely questioned and given a sweet beat as reward. They talked of the old cotter and his wife, of the caravan of dark wanderers, of small Menes and his black kitten, of the prayer of Menes and of the sky during that prayer, of the doings of the cats on the night the caravan left, and of what was later found in the cottage under the dark trees in the repellent yard. And in the end, the Burgesses passed that remarkable law which is told by traders in Hatheg and discussed by travelers in Nier, namely, that in Ulthar, no man Danny and Cindy were enjoying their second date together. They had gone to a scary movie, splitting a large popcorn and a soda with two straws, and then for a long drive in Danny's car. The warm air coming in through the windows felt like summer waving its final goodbye before fall. They drove out of town and up to the top of a hill known as the Overlook, also known as the local makeout spot. Danny parked the car, turning off the headlights, and Cindy absorbed the view ahead of her. She could see the entire town of Haddington, though it was just a mess of lights from here. Surprisingly, it was almost romantic. Wanting a change in music, Danny turned the radio dial, catching an emergency news bulletin in progress. Police are still searching for a local fugitive known as the Hook Man, on the loose since escaping yesterday from the Maple Grove Mental Hospital and believed to be heading south. Authorities are still unsure how he managed to leave the facility, and though local activists are encouraging a town curfew, the mayor has not yet announced a plan. We're recommending all you lovebirds out there stay in groups and head home as soon as you can. We'll be back with the full story at 10. That's so scary. Danny, uh, close the windows. (laughs) Oh, come on. Danny, please. Fine, but they're just going to fog back up. I think we should go back into town. Babe, we're safe. We aren't far from the prison. The doors are locked. They said he was going south. Nowhere near it's us. It's too He'd close. He had no reason to come up here. You I think don't he wants to take in the view? He did have a good point. Come here. Let me hold you. He moved in on her once more, but she firmly declined. I want to go home now. Ugh, you girls are always afraid of something. Wounded, he retreated to his seat. He placed the keys back into the ignition and started the car. In that moment, Cindy heard a faint scraping noise outside her door. Did you hear that? Danny turned the car off again, and the silence returned. Danny, don't stop the car. I want to (gasps) go. He's here, Cindy. Danny! 
He held his right hand up, forming the shape of a hook with his fingers and leaning towards Cindy. It's the hook man. He's here to murder all the horny teenagers. Danny. She was still frustrated, but laughing a bit helped relieve some of her fear. (laughs) Well, I'm glad I'm safe, but it looks like you're screwed. Yeah, just not the way I hoped. (sighs) I'm going to show you there's no one out there, okay? If I do that, can we stay? It's not even nine o'clock. I don't care what time it is. I'm not in the mood. He reached to touch her face, but she shifted away. Challenge accepted. Cindy yelped in protest as Danny exited the car, over-dramatically looking around. He called out in an exaggerated macho voice, tempting whoever could be listening to come out of the shadows. She squinted, looking into the darkness. There was only Danny. She crossed her arms, checking the mirrors. He returned to the car, opening the door. That turn you on? The opposite, actually. Can we please go? Whatever. Without getting into the car, he slammed the door and began walking towards the trees. Cindy called from her window, exasperated. Where are you going? I'm taking a piss. She was furious. Sitting in the dark car alone, she found herself questioning her taste in men and vowed to do better. A few minutes passed, and Cindy began to grow anxious. She glanced through the back window to the evergreen trees, but only saw the dark. She turned back around and sat, picking at her nails. Obviously, Danny was going to try to scare her. She wouldn't bother with his stupid games. She sat straight ahead, stone-faced. But several more minutes passed, and she couldn't help but feel that he was awfully committed to the joke. Even someone as stubborn as Danny would have gotten bored by now. Cindy honked the horn, keeping her eyes on the trees behind her. Nothing. She honked again and again, but still quiet. She tried to force back the frustrated tears welling in her eyes. Was he going to keep her out here all night? Cindy waited there, mentally going through her to-do list to pass the time, and thought about her family. She'd likely be grounded for missing curfew, though that would be a good excuse to avoid Danny for a while. She just hoped they hadn't heard about the lunatic on the loose. As she pondered what she'd say when she got home, it began to rain. A few drops at first, then more and more steady. A storm was expected, but not until the dead of night. She knew Danny would never stay out in the rain by choice, and a deep feeling of dread settled into her stomach when he still didn't return. Looking out her window, she noticed that the glass remained clear, free from droplets or any moisture at all. She looked to the other side, noting the dry window next to the steering wheel. Slowly cracking her window open, she took in the night air. It was dry, almost dusty. It didn't smell like rain. Cindy opened the glove compartment, shifting through papers and trash, but there was nothing of use. She felt underneath her seat and then below the driver's seat, where she touched the body of a long metal flashlight. She pulled it onto her lap, clicking the button, and it spat a bright beam of light into her eyes. 
Centering herself and breathing deep, Cindy pulled her shoulders through, sitting in the window. She raised the flashlight above, illuminating the trees behind her. There was Danny's gutted body, dangling from the branches that reached over the car. A long, open gash ran from the tip of his chin to his groin, the contents from within spilling out and drooping below. The roof of the car was painted brown with blood and guts. It had never rained at all. Cindy screamed, dropping the flashlight under the car. She pulled herself back inside, shutting the window. And though all the air had left her lungs, the scream continued. Pulling herself together, she squirmed into the driver's seat, feeling for the ignition. She knocked into the headlights, turning them on. Only a few feet in front of the car stood the escaped fugitive in his torn and tattered jumpsuit from the sanitarium. He was a massive, hulking man with long, greasy hair and a sprawling, rotting grin peeking from the shadows overtaking his face. Where his right hand should have been was a long, rusty hook dripping with blood. Cindy screamed again and furiously groped for the keys. The man stepped towards the car and she stopped, staring at the horrifying figure before her, gleefully dangling the car keys in the headlights. She pressed her hands on the horn as hard as she could, screaming again with all her might. Why couldn't Danny have left the keys? The lunatic bounded towards her, smashing the driver's side window with his hook. Cindy had already jumped into the back seat and opened the door. As she took her first step into the grass, the man grabbed a handful of her hair, forcing her back into the car. She swatted and hit him, but he didn't flinch. His eyes looked hungry, and Cindy was his next meal. His massive, dirty fingers gripped her head with such force that she could feel the hair ripping from her scalp. Her fists landed with less and less force, and she began to accept her fate. Ready for the finale, he pulled her from the back seat by her ankles. She was nearly limp, heavily flopping from the car into the grass with a thud. She couldn't catch her breath. She was feeling faint. The hookman was going to kill her. He fell to his knees, lifting her head from the dirt. They looked at each other, almost agreeing to what would come next, and he raised the hook high above. Then he brought it down, aiming for her throat. But she threw her right hand up mostly by instinct and deflected the blow. For a moment, they were locked there together. The hook had pierced all the way through her hand, latching around her wrist. She screamed in agony, attempting to free herself. He pulled back too, and she felt the muscles in her hand tear away. And then, a glimmer caught her eye from beneath the car. It was the metal casing of the flashlight, only a few inches from her left hand. She clutched the light and swung the metal body against his temple with all her strength. At last, her right hand separated from his hook with one final tear. She now used both hands to smash the lantern directly between his eyes. Cindy squirmed through the grass, crawling like an animal towards the trees before pulling herself to her feet. 
As she sprinted into the night, a waterfall of red gushed from her arm. Her hand was unrecognizable, and at some point he had gashed her above the shoulder, too. Cindy knew the man was gaining on her as she continued along the tree line, but she was moving as fast as she could. She could only hope that she could reach the bottom of the hill and flag someone on the road. Then, as she came around a cluster of trees, she saw a car several yards away, parked against the steep hillside of the overlook. The windows were foggy, and she heard the muffled sounds of music. Danny and Cindy weren't the only couple on the hill that night. Screaming for help, Cindy made it to the car, beating her good hand against the trunk, then along the windows and finally against the driver's door. Receiving no response, she tried the handle. It was open. She threw herself into the empty seat and shut the door. In that moment, her eyes landed on the two corpses in the rearview mirror. The keys were in the ignition, and she started the engine and locked the doors. She wiped the window with her left hand, trying to clear the condensation, and threw the car into reverse. Cindy backed into the road, trying to ignore the dead couple sitting behind her, and switched to drive. The car was facing the bottom of the hill and the main road. She could lay on the gas and make it to town before the radio switched to the next song. But the lingering monster had appeared in the shadows behind the car and she couldn't help but feel like she could do something more. Switching back into reverse, she pressed the pedal flat. The car lurched backwards, throwing the bodies behind her onto the floor, and gained speed as she neared the man. He stepped out of the way just in time, and she hit the brakes. He lunged towards the car, smashing the back window with his hook, and reached in for Cindy. She pressed on the gas, but the car hesitated in the mud. The bloody hook grew closer and closer. Finally, the car continued forward, throwing the man to the ground. Cindy twisted the wheel to the side, skidding in a full circle and facing him once again. He lifted himself from the dirt and now stood directly between the car and the steep hill looking into town. Fuck you. The car hurtled towards both the man and the drop-off. He lifted his hook into the air and began towards the car, shifting to his right to avoid the vehicle. But that's what Cindy had anticipated, and she yanked the steering wheel left. The front right of the car barreled into the hook man with a loud crunch, launching him over the side of the overlook, down hundreds of feet into the rocky valley below. She wanted to see his body, but she wouldn't stop the car until she made it to safety. As she neared the lights of the town, the tears came, along with the full realization of what had just happened. Cindy pulled into the police station and parked. Crying and shaking, she gingerly touched her wounds. She wanted to faint, or at least sleep until she woke up to find it all a nightmare. But then... She remembered she wasn't alone in the car. Slowly opening the door, Cindy stepped onto the pavement. She was dizzy and shivering, leaving a trail of blood. The rain was moving in now, and the droplets joined the crimson stream running down her arm. She headed towards the station entrance, limping around the back of the car, 
when her eyes landed on an odd form at the front of the vehicle. Lodged into the metal just above the tire was the man's rusty hook, with the bloody stump still attached at the end. The Hook, story by Brian Renaud, based on the urban legend. Told by Shannon Lee Weber. Featuring Aaron Holland, Brian Renaud, and Shannon Lee Weber.